Our scripture this morning is John 13, verses 18 through 38. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 13. That was the text we just read, 13 verses 18 through 38. This is our Believe Teaching series. We're working our way through the gospel according to John. The title of this weekend's message is Looks May Be Deceiving. I also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube Live right now. Thank you for joining us. Take a look at your sermon notes. If we had been one of Jesus' disciples, we would probably have found it difficult to, to be around Peter. I mean, he was blunt and at times arrogant and always said what was on his mind. No filter whatsoever. On the other hand, we might have regarded Judas with trust and respect because he was very quiet and seemingly humble, very rarely shared what was on his mind. In fact, he was the money bag guy. He took care of the money. Now, most would have voted for Peter as the one most likely to betray Jesus, but looks may be deceiving. This is why the Bible tells us in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, that we are not to judge a person. We're not to judge one another. Yeah, the Bible talks about we need to be discerning, and there's, there's a distinction between discernment and judgment. Uh, so we're to be discerning, but not judgmental. 
We are not to judge a person by where they are because we don't know how far they've come and quite frankly, we can't see into their heart. And, and that's the case here that we're studying. Uh, how many, just quick show of hands here, how many would say that you are more like Peter, uh, overt, overt in the way that you interact with people, okay? Okay, there's not very many of you there. Some of you are just kind of raising your hand like this. Come on, you're more overt than that. Like, hey, yeah, right over here. That would be overt, okay. Yeah, I see that. See that hand. Oh, okay. I'll point you out if I have to. I know some of you. You're pretty overt. How many would identify more with Judas being covert? You proved my point. Nobody wants to admit that they're covert, especially Judas, okay? That's what you were thinking. He's like, I'm not going to identify with him. Didn't he betray Jesus? And so, uh, yeah, we would all kind of fit in one of those two categories, uh, trying to find the balance between the two. We probably should be at times overt and other times covert. There should be a balance in our lives. Now, Look at your sermon notes here. This is what we're looking at here this morning. The difference between a false disciple, Judas, we're going to look at his life. He's going to teach us something about about sin. And then a struggling disciple, Peter, and an overcoming disciple, John. We'll look at the distinction between all three of these. The difference between all three of these is not by looking at the acts of their will, their externals, we tend to judge on externals, but the attitudes of their heart, their internals. <laughs> and guess what? We can't see really their internals. We can't see what's going on inside. What's fascinating about this story is that Jesus knows all of their hearts and yet loves them all unconditionally. He has an amazing love for them. And therefore, we should love one another as Christ has loved us. So, so here's this is what we're doing here this morning. We're not trying to identify all these different characteristics of certain people so that we can point them out here at Desert Breeze or any place else beyond this. No, this is more about us. We're not to judge one another, but this is really about looking into our hearts. Would I fit into the category of being a false disciple or a struggling disciple or an overcoming disciple? So it's an opportunity to look into our own hearts, and then when we come across these people that might fit some of these characteristics, we we just love them. We love them, no matter where they might be. And so here's the first fill in the blank on your notes. We're not going to spend much time on this, uh, the first few verses, verses 18 through 20, but our standard for discernment is God's Word. So we're not to be judgmental. We're certainly to be discerning. You can study more on this and read this on your own, maybe while you're working through the growing notes this week. And Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 talks about that discernment, helps us to understand the difference between discernment and then as you study Matthew 7, 1 through 5, you'll kind of see the difference between the two. It's important to know the difference. But let's take a look at the false disciple Judas. Let me go back to the text, verses 21 through 30. Let's just kind of walk through it slowly, keep your Bibles open, and then we'll, we'll make some points here. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Notice the disciples' response here. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom... He spoke. It's like, who's he talking about? One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side. I love that. Do you know who's that? Who's he talking about there? John. 
<laughs> I love it. We'll talk about that more, but John refers to himself in this book, I'm the one Jesus loves. That's right. You want to know who I am? I'm the one that Jesus loves. So he's writing this book, and this is what he says about himself, and he's reclining at the table next to Jesus by Jesus' side. He was on the right side, and we know that Judas was on the left side of Jesus as they're eating this Passover meal. So Simon Peter motioned to him, that is John, to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, so that the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, and Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now check this out. The the disciples still don't have a clue. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him by what we need for the feast, to, to go out and buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give some money to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, that is Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. I think we can learn a lot about the nature of sin from Judas, this false disciple, and here's the first characteristic of the nature of sin, it's self-centered. It's self-centered. Verse 30, Judas has left the Passover meal to go out, and we all know the rest of the story. He's going out to give up his relationship with the Creator and the Sustainer of the heavens and the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, for 30 pieces of silver, a couple hundred bucks, a couple hundred bucks in our day and time. He's going to give up his relationship with the Creator for a couple hundred bucks. That's self-centeredness. John chapter 12, we studied this a few weeks back, verse 6, it says that Judas was in charge of the money bag and would help himself to what was put into it. I don't think they, understood, they knew that at the time, but, but John, looking back on his behavior, realizes, oh my goodness, this guy was pulling money out regularly. He was very self-centered. He didn't care about others. It was all about him. Sin is the soul curved in on itself, serving itself rather than God and others. So the essence of sin, when someone says, well, what is sin? Sin is the essence of sin. A lot of different ways we could define it. The essence of sin is self-centeredness. It's, it's all about me. Sin makes your own ego, desires, and needs more real than anything else. In fact, anything else or anyone else gets discarded, trampled, or ignored if they're not there to help meet your needs and serve you. Self-centeredness makes everything else a means to an end. What's interesting about this is that all the good works that Judas did was really for himself. So here's what's fascinating, is that you can actually motivate people to be good for really bad reasons, for selfish reasons. So you could say, hey, I'm struggling in my marriage relationship. I could sit down with you and help you with, you know, conflict resolution skills and communication skills and compatibility skills. And yet, if I never deal with what's fundamentally wrong with all of us, you're going to use all those skills 
just to be better at manipulating and controlling the situation and the person in that situation. Fundamentally, what's wrong with all of us is that we're self-centered. We are self-centered. Judas shows us that. The Christian life is not behavioral modification. By the way, I, I listen to a lot of different preachers and teachers out there, and, and, and there are churches, even in this community and, and nationally, that are teaching a form of behavioral modification. And you need to be aware of that. The, the Christian life is not Christian life is not behavioral modification, but heart, but heart transformation. It's heart transformation. Here's my uh, parenting tip here for us parents and grandparents. The goal of parenting isn't children who obey, but children who obey out of a love for God. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's not just getting people to obey God. Come on, obey God. No, no. You want their hearts to be captivated by the beauty and the glory of who, who God is and what He's done for them. And their obedience would come out of that. That's, that's real life change. So self-centered heart can't be removed because that's fundamentally what's wrong with us. We're sinners by nature and by choice. So it can't be removed, but it must be replaced with an unselfish heart. And listen to me, the only way that it can be replaced with an unselfish heart is for you to have a satisfied heart because a satisfied heart is an unselfish heart. Our self-centeredness comes from an unsatisfied heart. We're trying to fill the void inside of us. And we're going to use anybody and everybody as a means to that end. That's Judas. That's the essence of sin. So a satisfied heart, and only he can satisfy our heart, will be an unselfish heart. So the nature of sin is self-centered, but here's the next one, next fill in the blank. It hides. I found this really fascinating here, looking at his life and how clueless the disciples were to who he was talking about. Verse 21, so Jesus says, one of you will betray me. In fact, three times in this chapter, he talks about that. Someone's going to betray me. Someone's going to betray me. Verse 22, the disciples are clueless to who it was. Verse 29, the disciples never suspected Judas and thought that he was going out to buy food or to give to the poor. Now, what's interesting about this, when Jesus brought this up, none of them actually kind of scratched their head and said, you know what, I was thinking about the same thing. In fact, we were kind of looking at Judas. Judas seems a little shady. In fact, Jesus, we noticed that when we went out to cast out demons, Judas's demons never came out. In fact, we went out to, to lay hands on the lepers to heal them. Every time Judas prayed for a leper, he never got healed. So yeah, there's something going on here. No, they never said that. Why is that? Because he looked like everyone else. He per performed certainly probably the same miraculous acts that everyone else did. He looked like everyone else. Looks may be deceiving. So let's talk about how sin hides. How does sin hide? Here's how it hides in our lives is that our tendency is to look at all the good we're doing and say, I can't be that bad. Look at all the people's lives that are being helped. Now, I'm old enough now to have watched some major ministries and ministry leaders crash and burn. And uh, it's, it's quite fascinating when you kind of do the research into that to try to understand what was going on. 
And, and most of them were very, you know, they're almost like celebrity leaders and pastors. And, and what you hear from interviews is that people saw hints of that, but their loyalty exceeded their honesty. In fact, maybe some of those ministries, they were demanding such loyalty that you couldn't say anything. And of course, many times people would say, well, he can't really be that bad because look at all the people that are coming and being helped. And I would be the last one to bring this ministry down, so I don't want to do that. It was hiding in clear sight of many people, and they were afraid to say anything. In fact, what's interesting about some of those ministries is that they rose to such a level of popularity that it exceeded the charisma of the leader, exceeded the character of his, of the character of that person, and never grew to the same stature. And so I can't be that bad, so there's justification, rationalization. I can't be that bad. Look at all the good that's being done. I mean, at least I, I attend church, I give money regularly, I'm involved in a small group. Yeah, I've got this little thing going on over here. Can't be that, can't be that bad. I'm, I'm not a workaholic, I just, I just have a strong work ethic. I can't be an alcoholic, <laughs> I'm the life of the party. I, I, I'm not stingy, I'm not stingy with my money, I'm, I'm just very prudent. I'm not critical, I just have high standards. I'm not racist. You know, you really can't trust those people. See, it hides until it's too late and you do things that you, were, you thought you were never capable of, of doing. Now, here's a verse that my mom, and my mom drilled into us kids growing up. It's found in Numbers 32, 23. This is what she said to us kids. <laughs> Be sure your sins will find you out. Anybody familiar with that verse? So how do you think us kids felt? It's like, what? There was no hiding around my house. She says, I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out if you're lying. I'm going to find out if you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. Be sure your sins will find you out. The Bible says that. By the way, that's true. Be sure your sins will find you out. It's going to come to the surface. It'll come out. And so the nature of sin is self-centered. It hides, and then it grows. That's the next one. It grows. Verse, verse 2, during supper, this is a verse from last week. Listen to what it says. And see, see if you can see how it's growing in, Peter, in, in Judas. Growing in Judas. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray to betray Jesus. And then verse 27, our text today, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. You notice the progression? It goes from put it into the heart of Judas to Satan entered into him. That's progression. Genesis 4, 7, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of, of Cain and Abel. Cain uh, kills Abel, first murder in the Bible, and first sibling rival, rivalry. It's horrible. And God is talking to Cain and giving Cain an opportunity to repent. And this is what he says in Genesis 4, 7. Sin is crouching at the door. 
So you see the imagery there? It's like a lion or tiger that's hiding and ready to pounce on you. Sin is is crouching at the door, and its desire is contrary to you, to rule you. But you must rule over it. So sin is progressive. It initially is something you can control, and then it begins to control you little by little. It begins to grow. See, every time you think a selfish, angry, prejudiced, dishonest, vengeful, greedy, proud thought, you are slowly but surely becoming that kind of person. Little by little, in your own heart. That's why it tells us in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. It determines the direction of your life. Proverbs 23.7, King James Version, New American Standard. Maybe you're familiar with it. I grew up on this verse too. It's like, as a person thinks within himself, then so is he. You're the product of, of what you entertain in your head, your thoughts, your heart. What's going on in your heart? Each time you do it, it gets easier to do it, and before long, it's who you are. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. Now, now think about this. I'm, I'm getting old. I'm an old dude, okay? And I look at stuff in my life now, and I know that some of you feel the same way. If you really were to be honest with yourself, you look at yourself right now, and there was some stuff that I should have dealt with years ago that I didn't deal with, and now it's kind of raising its ugly head in my life. Some patterns, some habits, some, some ways of thinking that could be very destructive to my own well-being. It's because I let that grow in my life, just kind of discounting it, rationalizing it, justifying it or not even giving it a second thought. We can all do that. We can fall prey to that. So the nature of sin is self-centered, hides, grows, and then it's deeply relational. Deeply relational. Verse 21, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And it says that he's troubled in spirit when he talks about the betrayer. Someone here is gonna betray me. He's troubled in spirit, the Greek here, New Testament was written in Greek, so the Greek word means torn to pieces. So Jesus' heart is torn to pieces because of this betrayer. Genesis 6, 5 through 6, remember the book of origins? God created the heavens and the earth, created man. Man became terribly evil and wicked because he turned and rebelled against God. Here's the heart of God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. It's the same idea here, torn to pieces. So notice in this In this story here with Jesus and the disciples, Jesus isn't detached or indifferent to the sin of Judas' betrayal. He's not saying, hey, I, I knew this was going to happen. I can't let it bother me. No big deal. He doesn't have that attitude. Nor is he terribly angry and offended by the sin of Judas's betrayal. He's not flying off the handle and saying, how dare he do this to me after all I've done and will do for him. He doesn't respond that way, either way. 
No, he's torn. His heart is torn to pieces. That's what it says. Sin is deeply relational. Sin is not just breaking some arbitrary rules. Listen to me. It's breaking the heart of God. It's a dagger in the heart of God. He's torn to pieces over our sin. Why is that? Because his laws reflect his character, and his laws come to us out of his perfect love and infinite wisdom, knowing how he created us, knowing what's in our best interest. No one loves you like God. Listen to me. No one. No one will ever love you as much as he loves you. And he always knows what's in your best interest. And it's insanity to think otherwise. It's deception. You're being duped by the world or Satan or by your sinful nature. When you think otherwise, that somehow God's holding out on you, he doesn't have your best interest at heart, I'm telling you, he always does. That's why he's established his rules the laws, the Ten Commandments, it's all about His wisdom and love. He loves us. And so when we say, I don't need that, I don't need to live according to that, I can do my own thing, it's a trampling on the love and wisdom of God. It's deeply relational. By the way, because He knows the destruction that will bring to not only to yourself, but to the others around you in your, in your life. And so it's deeply relational. Now, what's interesting about this text is that the whole meal is an appeal to Judas. Three times, Jesus says, someone will betray me. Verse 11, verse 18, verse 21. Now, John is sitting to Jesus' right, his right side. Judas is sitting on Jesus' left. We know that based on Luke 22. So think about what Jesus did to all of them, and and particularly to Judas, who's going to betray him. Washing his feet sitting beside him, dipping into the bowl with him, verse 26. You see all of this, especially dipping into the bowl, giving him that morsel. This is a sign of deep honor, affection, and love. And guess what? Judas knows that Jesus knows. Judas knows that Jesus knows because he keeps coming up saying, someone's going to betray me. Judas knows. Jesus knows. And Jesus has appealed to Judas when he gave him that morsel, he's looking into his eyes. And I believe, really, this is, this is his heart. This is his attitude. I see you, Judas. I see you to the bottom. I know everything about you. And I love you and want you. Please turn back. Come to me. That's the, heart of a, that's the heart of God. This is, this is one last appeal to a person with an ever-darkening heart. What's interesting in verse 30, our, the last, uh, one of our last verses here in our text, after Judas received the morsel of bread, it's not actually the last verse, I think verse 38 is our last verse, but after, Jesus, or after Judas received the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Did you notice that? John is not just telling us what time it is. One of the themes of the gospel of John is darkness and light. We've seen that as we've studied through it. So as Judas plunged himself into darkness, he was plunging himself into spiritual darkness. 
So the nature of sin is self-centered, hides, grows, deeply relational. But listen to me, before we move on to Peter here, it's never, it's never too late to turn back. It's never too late to turn back. When I was thinking about that, I was thinking of, the, of, one, of one of the thieves hanging next to Jesus. One of them cursed Jesus. The other one confessed Jesus on his deathbed, turned his heart towards Jesus. It's never too late to turn back. Struggling disciple Peter, that's the next one. Let's jump ahead to verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why, why, can't, I, why, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Truly, truly means supreme importance, absolute certainty. Peter, you will deny me three times. Here's what Jesus is saying to Peter. You will be a threefold coward. You are a wreck, Peter, and within hours you'll see that you are a wreck. So why do we struggle with sin? I think we can learn something here from Peter. And I think here's the first characteristic of of those of us that struggle with sin. Overconfidence. That's your next fill in the blank. Overconfidence. Here's what overconfidence and how it shows itself in our life. It is thinking you are smarter, stronger, more capable than what you really are. See, Peter didn't know who he really was. I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, "Um, in fact, you're going to betray me three times. Peter, you don't even know your own heart. That's overconfidence. See, our greatest problems are not our weaknesses, but our delusions of strength. Verse 36, Lord, where are you going? I don't know if you noticed this in the text, but, but Jesus had just talked about love. He says, he says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Pretty profound. It should have created you know, this introspection of Peter to say, yeah, you know what, I probably don't even come close to that, whatever. Peter just rushes right through that and says, but Jesus, where are you going? No filter, just jumps right ahead. Probably didn't even hear what Jesus said. Peter rushes right past the love of Jesus and is offended that he can't go with Jesus. And once again, Peter, like I said, has no filter. He says whatever is on his mind. And, And certainly that could be a sign of overconfidence. Someone that talks too much can be a sign of overconfidence. Someone that talks too much could be also a sign of underconfidence because they're trying to kind of mask and control the conversation. And verse 37, he says, I will lay down my life for you. So, so that is overconfidence in Peter because within hours, as I said, he is going to deny Christ three times. And even the third time, now check this out, the third time he calls down curses upon Jesus. He curses his Savior I mean, that's, that's an epic failure considering really what he does and what he says. And then between the upper room, between the upper room discourse where they are now and the arrest of Jesus, his disciples, Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And it's fascinating what happens there because you can certainly see Peter's overconfidence along with the other disciples. Matthew 26, 41, Jesus told his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Jesus goes a little deeper into the garden. He's pouring his heart out to the Father. He comes back and he finds his disciples doing what? Sleeping along with Peter. Let's just focus on Peter because that's what it's about. So in essence, Jesus is saying, Peter, there is a test coming and you're not ready for it and you should be calling out to God for help. That's, that's what he's saying to Peter. But Peter was sleeping along with the other disciples because Peter is overconfident and he finds prayer boring. And he was fatigued. Jesus was fatigued. But Jesus knew what was, where he was headed and he's crying out to the Father. And so should the disciples be, especially Peter. So it's telling us something about this idea of overconfidence. It's almost like Peter is saying, hey, I don't need to pray. I don't need to pray. I'll give my life for him. I can handle anything that is coming my way. You know, it's interesting as I look at, you know, over the last year, COVID 2020. I don't know if you guys know the stats here. But uh, it, all the churches in America have lost one-third of their people that they're AWOL. They're not even going to church anywhere. They're not even watching online. So if COVID took out a third of the people, what does it say? How, what, what kind of a foundation were they living on? What, what kind of basis was their life? It certainly didn't seem like it was built on rock. There's a lot of people in turmoil. There's a ton of people that turned away from God. There's people that are just out there doing their own thing. It took them down. It took them out. When, church, when a church goes through a crisis or any number of things, it kind of determines who's, who's got their feet established on rock. And, and, and what's interesting about Peter here is that not only is he out of touch with his own capacity to sin, he doesn't even know him, his own self, but he doesn't seem like he's very concerned about what may come his way through crisis. And I'm telling you, if they, you think 2020 with COVID was bad, we got worse things ahead of us. Did you know that? I mean, we're heading into a dark time in our history. And I believe during this dark, as it gets darker, I believe the church will rise up and become brighter. But if, but if you're overconfident about that and you're not crying out to God regularly and seeking Him, you're going to be taken down. You're going to be taken out. I've seen it too many times in, in churches, people's lives. So, so what Jesus is, is saying, and I think it's a, it's a lesson for all of us, are you in touch with your own vulnerability to sin, your own capacity? Are you just making excuses and rationalizing and justifying it? Well, hey, I'm basically a good person. Look at all the good I'm doing. No, 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 you need to deal with that stuff. Otherwise, it will control you. It will take you out. You need to build your life on the foundation of the rock of the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I'm telling you, you'll be able to endure the coming storms. And you'll be able to shine bright to the world. Where our hope lies, it hopes, our hope lies in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in his gospel. And so this, that's, that's part of that. So let me, let me hit you with some, some hard stuff here. That's pretty hard, but here's, here's some harder stuff. If you don't know the depth of your capacity to sin and the test that is coming, 
coming your way, not just nationally, but individually, you're setting yourself up for failure. So let me ask you this. Do you find prayer boring? Do you, do you find spiritual disciplines boring? Spiritual disciplines would be prayer, Bible study, hanging out with other Christians, coming to church, getting involved in a small group. Do you find yourself never getting to it because you're just too busy? Any spiritual disciplines or prayer? You see, prayer is not boring if you know who you are and the danger that awaits you. But if you're overconfident, you're not going to see any of that. You're just going to go along with life and no big deal. And it's going to take you down. It's going to take you down, whatever you're going to face. The best part of my day is when I get up first thing in the morning and spend time with my Savior. Oh, my goodness. I don't know how... I don't know how I could even survive without that. I understand my own vulnerability to sin. I also know what's headed our way. I've already gone through some really horrible things in my own life. And if it wasn't for the grace of God and me clinging to Him and trusting in Him, I would have never survived it, believe me. I would never have survived it. And I love Him. I love our Savior. I love spending time with Him. And so should you, if you really understood your own capacity to sin and the fact that you're going to face crisis, how are you going to get through that? It's going to be because you love him and you know him and you know that he walks with you. Your life is going to be rock solid. So we, we, why we struggle with sin, overconfidence, also false identity. Verse 37, this is Peter once again. I will lay down my life for you. Matthew 26, 31 same event, a little more detail. Jesus said, all of you will fall away this night. Verse 33 of Matthew 26, Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. <laughs> you hear the comparison going on? Competition. In other words, Peter is saying, I am the most sold out and faithful of all the disciples. All those dudes, they're losers. They'll, they'll probably fall away. Yeah, of course they will. But not me. Peter is proud of his faithfulness. He is not getting his identity from Jesus' love for him, but, for, but his great love for Jesus. It is based on his performance and his record, not on Jesus' performance and Jesus' record. There's a major difference. Peter is showing himself to be very religious, works righteousness rather than grace righteousness. You see, Jesus is Peter's teacher, but not his savior. Peter is Peter's savior. You see, if your identity is based on your performance, for Peter, it's his courage. Look at me, I'm gonna stand up. I'll give my life for Jesus. If our identity is based on our performance, then you won't be able to handle criticism about your performance. And you'll be in denial and won't be able to admit when you have failed. You won't even be able to identify any hint of failure within you. I can't admit that I have any cowardice within me if, if, my, if my courage is my identity. You become blinded to all of that because it's the basis of your self-regard. But see, if the base of your self-regard is who Christ is and what he's done for you, not in who you are and what you're doing, 
then you're going to be more open to, to be able to see the sinfulness within your own heart and your failure and be able, open to admit that. God doesn't love and accept and bless us because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who he is and what he's done. So how do you go from being an epic failure and come out on the other side a phenomenal leader as, as Peter does? Well, what you have to do is when you fail, when you see sinfulness within your own heart, you don't run from Jesus like Judas, but you run to Jesus like Peter. And when you read to the end of the story, the gospel according to John, John chapter 21, you see exactly that. You see, G you see Peter running to Jesus. Now, it's interesting in verse 36, Jesus answered Peter, Peter saying, well, why can't we go with you? And, and Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. Where was he going? He's going to the cross. He's going to die. But notice what he says, but you will follow afterwards. In other words, guess what, Peter? Later on, you will lay down your life for me. In fact, we know church history says that he did exactly that. He was crucified upside down. In essence, Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, this failure you're going through, if you respond to it appropriately, will make you into the person you now think you are. But you've got to respond with repentance. Turn from that, turn towards me, run into my arms of love and experience my grace and my mercy to transform your life. Every time you fail, you run to Christ and fall more deeply into his arms as you plunge yourself into his grace. See, that's how you know you have a new identity. The old identity of performing, you're gonna run from Christ, believe me. But if you have a new identity, every time you fail, you're gonna run to him. Like the prodigal son who came to his senses and he goes back to his father. His father sees him at a distance, it says in Luke 15, and the father runs out to him and smothers him with kisses. So when you repent and turn to your Savior, that's what you'll experience, and he'll transform your heart, and that's what will ultimately begin to change you. We have a false identity. Why, why we struggle with sin? Overconfidence. False identity. Now let's talk about overcoming disciple. Overcoming disciple John. John knew the love of Jesus in a very intimate way. Of all of his disciples, John was the closest friend to Jesus. I don't know if you know this, but so Jesus had 12 disciples. Among the 12, there was three that were particularly closer than all the other, others, other disciples. So Peter, James, and John. And then among Peter, James, and John, John was extra close to Jesus. And so, verse 23, as we read, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And, and so, four times in the gospel, John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. John 19, 26, 22, 21, 20, and this particular verse, verse 23. John was known as the apostle or disciple of love. In fact, he goes on to write three letters, first, second, third John. They're packed full of love. He's the, the apostle of love. Now, now, I think that John had something here. It's almost like, it, it sounds a little bit like he's saying, hey, 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 listen, Jesus loves me more than he loves you. I'm his favorite. And that's not actually what he's saying. I think he's actually teaching us a, a truth here. I'm, I'm the disciple Jesus loves, and we should all be able to say that. Here's, here's what I think he's helping us to understand. 
is that if by grace through faith, if through grace you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he loves all of us as if there's only one of us. Did you know that? You can have an intimate relationship with the creator of the universe. It's spectacular. You see, you and I have the creator of the universe. We have his undivided attention, unconditional affection, and unlimited action working for our good (laughs) 24-7. That's, John knew that. Now, that's not to say that John didn't have his own problems. I'm not in any way saying John was not also a struggling Christian. Remember the pride and dirty feet of all the disciples? Remember when they came into this upper room area with this Passover meal, and they all had dirty feet, and they were all filled with pride. They were all arguing about who's the greatest. Well, John was right part of that. And, and because they were arguing over who's the greatest, one of them or all of them should have been washing each other's feet, but nobody washed anybody's feet because they were full of pride, so we see that. We also know this in Mark three seventeen. Jesus called John and his brother James. Anybody know what he tagged them as? Sons of thunder. I don't think it was real positive either. I don't think it was a positive characterization of these guys because when a Samaritan village rejected Jesus in Luke 9, 54, it says that James and John saw it and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You hear what they're saying? I don't like the way they treated our Savior. We need to fry their tail ends. That's what they're saying. I mean, it sounded like John had a little bit of a hair trigger. Didn't take much to get him into a fight. So all I'm saying is that he struggled. I think true disciples are anywhere between struggling and overcoming. So how did John become the apostle of love? How did Peter become a great leader in the first century church? How can we overcome sin in our lives? Here it is. It's by beholding the glory of the cross we are transformed into loving Christians. Look at verses 31 and 32. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You see, in the last moments of a person's life, which is true with Jesus, you don't talk about the weather or sports or stock market. You talk about what is most important to you. And in verses 31 and 32, five times he uses the word glory. Did you see that? Five times. I mean, anytime you see in the Bible you're reading, it says glory, 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 glory. In two verses, He's trying to get your attention. Glory of God. So how do we overcome sin beholding the glory of the cross? The greatest manifestation of the glory of God is, is the cross. Now, if someone were to come, off, come in here off the street, wasn't familiar with Christianity, didn't know anything about the gospel whatsoever, and we talked about the glory of the cross, and they would kind of have a little bit of an idea of what the cross is. We say the glory of the cross. They might say, wow, that's, that's odd that the cross is glorious. Because oftentimes when we think of something glorious, we think of something like my wife and I experienced this last, this last week. My, my uncle and aunt's home in Flagstaff borders on the National Forest, and Friday morning when my wife and I woke up, we saw about 80 to 90 elk gazing 30 yards outside their back porch. It was simply glorious. It was otherworldly. It was one of those worship experiences. My wife was still sleeping. I went and said, hey, hey, hey. 
come here, check this out. She woke up and we go, oh, wow, that's glorious, certainly glorious. And it was also 50 degrees. <laughs> that was really glorious. Isn't it mid-50s or something like that? Oh, that was good. And the high this last few days was 70s. Oh, that was so hard. That was glorious. See, if you had been an eyewitness of, of someone being crucified, it would have made you want to vomit. It was the most brutal, excruciating, shameful kind of torture anyone could experience. So how, how is the cross of Christ glorious? We're to behold the glory of the cross. The word glory here, the Greek is doxa, doxology, where we get our term of worship, exaltation, love, weight, significance, importance. So how is the cross of Christ glorious? Because of its great worth. That's why it's glorious. His death in our place for our sins has given us a life that all the money in this world cannot buy. John 10, 10, I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. It's also glorious because of its beauty. Isaiah 52, 14 says Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There's nothing more beautiful than when someone gives up their beauty to make someone else beautiful, and that's what he did for us. There's nothing more glorious than when someone gives up their glory to make others glorious. That's what he did for us. I was thinking of an illustration that we could all relate to, and this is what came to mind. I don't know how many times I have heard stories of the courage and self-sacrifice of a soldier taking a bullet or falling on a grenade to protect his comrades. And whatever permanent scars and damage that soldier has is not ugly to those who were saved. It is not ugly to them, but a, very, but a glorious and beautiful reminder of his sacrifice to save their lives, filling them with gratitude. When we get to heaven, the only man-made thing that will be in heaven will be the scars on our Savior's body from him giving, from him giving his glory to make us glorious, giving up his beauty to make us beautiful. I think this idea of beholding the glory of God, I don't know that we're really good at this, the glory of the cross as Christians, but this is what it means. It means that the person and the work of Jesus Christ becomes more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than anything else. There are times in your life that as you're studying his word and it just dawns on you who Christ is and what he's done for you, and it overwhelms you, maybe even brings tears to your eyes, and you're lost in love, wonder, and praise. Do you have moments like that? You're filling your heart and mind up with some kind of glory. Everybody does. That's how we live. But man, when, you, when your heart is captivated by the glory and the beauty of Jesus and what he did for you, I'm telling you, that's what will transform your life. Look at verses 33 to 35. This is what will happen to you. Little children, yet a little while, and I am, not, I, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Also, 
are you to love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Here's what it does. It transforms us into loving Christians. So beholding the glory of the cross transforms us into loving Christians. If you don't like how you're behaving and how you're responding to life, it's really a worship issue. What are you worshiping? Change what you are worshiping and it will transform your life. Behold the glory of the cross. Worship him. Understand all that he's done for you. Let that get a hold of your heart. Believe me, it'll change you into a loving person. The greatest sign of a true disciple of Christ is love. Of an overcoming disciple is love. A new commandment I give to you. Is that a new commandment? I thought he talked about that in the Old Testament. Yes, because Jesus demonstrated a love like no one had ever seen. Romans 5, 8 God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That Jesus, God, would die for his enemies and make us his friends. Not just his friends, his family. That's amazing. The cross of Christ is the model, the means, the motivation for our love for one another. It's the model, but it's also the means. It changes our hearts. And the motivation to want to share that love with others. And here's what Jesus is saying. I'm leaving and going back to the Father, but the way the world will know who I am and what I have done is by the quality of Christians' love for one another. That's why John writes later, 1 John 4, 7, and 8, if you aren't a loving person, then you don't know God and you're not born of God because God is love. You see, if the world is turning away from Christianity, we should first look at ourselves. So how do you know you're becoming more and more emotionally and spiritually healthy and whole? You're becoming an overcoming Christian. Number one mark. What is it? What does Jesus say? Number one mark. You become a loving person. You're becoming more and more of a loving person. I did a DB clip on that not too many weeks ago. It's on our website and YouTube channel. You could check that out. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. So let me ask you this question. This is how we end. Are you known as a loving person? I would have to ask those that are closest to you. Are you known as a loving person? Are you able to love others regardless of race, education, social status, or politics? Here's the key. Your love for others will increase in direct proportion to your experience of God's love for you as you learn to behold the glory of the cross. When you do that more and more in your spiritual disciplines, I'm telling you, game over, you'll become a more loving person and people will see that in your life. Next weekend, let not your hearts be troubled. That's what we're going to talk about. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. If you're new here, uh, I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any other available elders and leaders and we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Let's just take a moment. Let's pray. Let's search our hearts. So Father God, I pray for those listening to this message who are false disciples, that they would hear the appeal. Jesus is saying, I see you to the bottom. I know everything about you, and I still love you and want you. Please turn back. Come to me. I pray they would hear and heed that call. I pray for those of us who are struggling Christians that, that we would confess our overconfidence and false identity and run, run to you, Jesus, regularly with our sins, to be forgiven and cleansed and to have a a fresh and overwhelming experience of your love for us. 
And that we would learn to practice the spiritual disciplines like our life depends on it. I pray for, for all of us, that all of us would be overcoming Christians who, who learn to behold the glory of the cross so that we can be lost in love, wonder, and praise as, as we become more and more transformed into loving people. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Love you guys. God bless you.